socialists. We're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Barris Sage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're going to be talking to retired U.S. Air Force Colonel uh, Chris Strickland about his new, brand new book, Survivor's Obligation. Hey, Ed, how's it going? It's going great, Ron. Looking forward to talking to Chris again. Yeah, uh, as you know, I'm probably uh, uh, more excited than anybody about this because I'm a big Thunderboy fan, but uh, Thunderbird <laughs> fan. But uh, Chris, <laughs> well, welcome back. This is just an honor to have you on for the third time. As you know, I always love to spend time with you and your listeners here, and it's always one of those great conversations. You never know where it's going to go, but you know we're going to have a good time. Well, I'm going to dispense reading your bio, Chris. We'll post it, uh, but people can just also go back to our prior two interviews where we kind of focused on the lessons learned and the debriefing. But this book, Survivor's Obligation, which you were gracious enough to share with Ed and I prior to its publication, I, I have to tell you, Chris, I was in a seminar that I was speaking at and I was in the back of the room and I was reading your book and I couldn't put it down. I didn't even want to get up and do my talk because I was just so engrossed in the book. It, it's profound, it's in places it makes you weep, and in places it just, it, you know, you brought us into the cockpit of your ejection, and, and I, I thought to myself, wow, for you to even write that must have been just cathartic, painful, just a bundle of emotions. I just, why did you write this book? So first of all, I want to say that what you just said means a lot to me because I respect both of you a great deal. And and this book to write for me and my co-author, uh, for me, it was more painful than the ejection. It honestly was. Um, and, and for my wife as well, which uh, we'll talk about here in a minute. But why did I write it? For 13 years after my ejection, what was deemed an unsurvivable ejection, it's one of those things where everybody just spends their time going, you shouldn't be here. Uh, why are you here? And that's what I asked myself. It was a lot of weight on me. And I was still in the Air Force. You know, I only retired two years ago. So I spent all those years trying to put it behind me and not talk about it. So for me to now write a book about it and ask people to, to look at the video and, and talk about the lessons, uh, it was therapeutic for me in some ways. It made me and my wife talk about it because we never mentioned this to each other. We never discussed the actions. Uh, in her mind, she was told by the Air Force I didn't survive over the telephone. Obviously, we both have specific aspects of trauma from this, and it was therapeutic. It, it is therapeutic because every time I can talk about my story for me, it gets a little easier to talk about, and I can talk about it a little bit more. So thank you for your feedback. Chris, is it easier for you to talk about it now, now that you have? That's a tough question. I will tell you, uh, the night before the book released, 
I had one of those moments. I went to my wife and said, I think I made a mistake. I wish I hadn't written this book uh, because I was terrified to let people in. You know, there's a persona of being a fighter pilot for both me and Joel, my co-author, where we want to stand up and say, everything's perfect. Here's how good everything we do is. And we don't want to admit we have trouble. We have struggles. We have weaknesses and that things affect us emotionally. I mean, who wants people to know that fighter pilots have feelings? And, and now, like you said, when you read the book, hopefully you felt what I felt. You felt what Terry felt, what Marsha felt, because this was traumatic on both of our families for our different stories. Do you wish you would have talked with your wife about it sooner, looking back? I, I do. I, I do. Uh, that's, that's my biggest regret, is that we didn't talk about it. And it was one of those things, if the Air Force could put it aside and let me go on with my career, then so could we. And it was just easier than dealing with it, is to go, I won't talk about that till I retire. And that's ultimately what drove me opening up, is a buddy of mine called, it on it and called me on it and said, hey, you're retiring. You, you guaranteed you would talk about this. And I went, I'm not ready. And, uh, and he put me on contract to give a keynote to his organization. And together we agreed to put my wife in the contract as well. Because I knew if we weren't legally obligated to do this and do it with both of us in the same room, that, that we would back out. And we needed that, that impetus to push us forward and force us to tell our story. Because I think there's so much that can be learned for everybody out there. This story has nothing to do with the ejection of an aircraft or stage four cancer. Those are two things that spark your interest and may get you to open the cover. But when you finish it, hopefully you will feel that this is about surviving and how we get better to live intentionally tomorrow with the sunrise we get that so many others haven't that weren't afforded. And that is what the book is about. Right. No, I love how you say that this book is not about why I crashed. It's about why I survived and how it has impacted my life. I, that's just incredibly powerful. Chris, I have to ask you, you had a, you wrote that you had a sinking feeling on September uh, what was it? September uh, 14, September 2003, <laughs> three, the 50th anniversary of the Thunderbirds. Uh, and you had a sinking feeling that day. Can you kind of explain that? You, you didn't even want did. to do the maneuver. That, that's true. It was, it was one of those days where everything's going wrong. It was one of those events where everything is going wrong. We had, we had flown too much. We were on our third uh, show site, third location on one trip. Uh, we didn't have enough fuel coming in to do our practice maneuvers. Our points moved. The satellite imagery was wrong. I could go on and on at everything that indicated this wasn't a good show. And and for some reason on that morning, I had a normal routine I did, and, and I completely broke my routine. I usually got up and went for a run, and I didn't that day. Whenever I woke up, I had a sinking feeling that something was wrong. So first of all, I call home and talk to my wife and go, is everything okay? Because I think that's what mm -hmm. it is. And she's like, everything's fine. What are you talking about? You know, and uh, and so I, I go through my routine of, of what I'm doing and, and I go, it's not right. So I went into the safety observer and said, something don't feel right today. Too many things have gone wrong. I do not want to fly my takeoff maneuver. What I want to do is, is transition to my backup maneuver, which I'll tell you that most most audiences wouldn't even notice. We have a backup maneuver we fly. Mm -hmm. But my takeoff maneuver was one of two of the most dangerous maneuvers the Thunderbirds flew. And I said, don't feel good today. I, I don't want to fly it. And he goes, you're trained to do this. This is what you do. You're a skilled aviator. Go fly your maneuver. And I went and flew my maneuver. Did he feel any remorse or apologize to you afterwards about that decision? 
Well, there's, there's obviously, there's always a lot more to the story. Um, and yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Okay. I, I mean, you, like you said, you did that maneuver 258 times and you even had a bad feeling about your ejection seat. You said your crew spent an all nighter fixing it because something was troubling you on flights. Yeah. In the, in the month prior to the ejection, we were at the practice range in Las Vegas and me and the other solo, when we take off, we go upside down and do about a negative three G push to check the aircraft out. And when I would push upside down and negative G's that, the seat would move like a quarter inch, a half inch, but just mm-hmm. enough to let you feel the seat move. And so the first time it happened, I, I stopped the maneuvers. I brought the jet back and I rode it up and they went and checked it out and couldn't find anything. So I flew it the next day and, and it did it again. Well, it turns out there's only two people that fly the F-16 like that. And both of us are Thunderbirds. So the company goes in to check the specs and see what they are. And they go, well, really there are no specifications when you're upside down at over a negative three G's you know, because it's not a normal thing. So well, we think it'll be good. And my crew chiefs, my team, the Thunderbirds, they said, if it takes your attention away from what you're doing, even for a split second, when you're upside down at those altitudes, that's not good for us. And they pulled an all-nighter. They replaced my ejection seat, replaced every part of it because it made me uncomfortable. And who knows how what was wrong with the other seat or what would have been different but I will tell you that the ejection when it happened was on the new seat and it was an out of the envelope ejection. One that they say was unsurvivable and the seat was so far out of parameters. There is no way it could safely get me out of the aircraft. And I attribute that to my team who put in the extra effort and cared enough to go, if it's not right for you, it's not right for us. And we're going to go change it out. Wow. Wow. That. And I also, I have to ask you this because you wrote, as you were describing that flight in those pages of the book, you said, I made my final decision not to eject. The captain stays with his ship. A pilot stays with his aircraft. Is that the ethic of a fighter pilot, Chris? I thought the ethic of a fighter pilot was to eject, not go down with the ship like a captain in the Navy. So did I. That's what we're trained to do. We're trained to eject. But when it came down to that moment and, and my training, I did not make it through this maneuver. My training made it through this maneuver. That's the power of what the Air Force does for how well we tra- train our aviators. And as you go through, because everything was automatic. People go, how upset were you? How nervous were you going through the maneuver? And I say, I was the most calm I've ever been in my entire life because I had trained my entire life for that moment. And as it came down to it, when it was time to pull the handle, I made the conscious decision not to. I said, I'm not going to eject. And I knew I was going to crash. I call it my fighter pilot hand is the one flying, my right hand. And my fighter pilot hand said, nope, you're, you're going with it. Either you bring it back or you're not going back. And right or wrong, that was my mentality. And that's what went through my mind. And at that same moment, I watched the canopy come off the aircraft. I watched the smoke engulf me. I watched it rivet by rivet go through the sequence. And I thought, what's going on? Why is my canopy coming off? And as I looked down, my left hand had pulled the ejection handle. My left hand was the one that said, you have to try. Right. Your your training just kicked in. The training just kicked in. So people ask me, other fighter pilots who want to know what happens when you make that decision, what it's like to make the ultimate decision to pull the ejection handle. And my answer is, I don't know. I decided not to eject, but my training took over 
and said, you have to try to live. And that ejection's 40 G's, isn't it? It is about 40 G's. And, and I will tell you, as I'm standing here talking to you today, I'm two and a half inches shorter, two and a half inches shorter than I was that morning. And, and people assume it's from the ejection going up the rails, whether it's 30 G's, 40 G's, uh, who knows? But the more important thing is whenever I landed, the one thing that I did not do according to my training was my parachute landing fall. We're trained to dissipate the energy when we hit the ground across our body so we don't break anything. And I had so much adrenaline going on that day that I, I stuck to land it. I landed on my feet and I stayed on my feet. And you stayed there. And it compressed my, my body two and a half inches. The doctor said there's not two and a half inches of cartilage in your body. And once you push through the cartilage, you hit bone on bone and it shatters every bone in your body. And my answer to them was, I stand before you two and a half inches shorter and I didn't break a bone. And you, you discovered you were two and a half inches shorter because of the greatest hug ever known to mankind with your wife. I, I love that you pulled that quote out of there. So for those that don't know, I married my high school sweetheart. We've been together 31 years. We've been married for 25 and she flew up there to see me. I left, I left the scene on a backboard in a helicopter strapped to that for quite some time. And so it was in, in the days that followed, she ran up to hug me like you can picture any husband and wife doing. And, and as she embraced me, I stepped back and I put my arms out and I looked at her and I literally think she thought I was crazy. She goes, well, what are you doing? And I go, you need to take me to the hospital. And you know, this is the first thing I've said to her. And she goes, why? I said, because you've gotten taller. It turns out when you've been with somebody that long, one of those things you don't notice is you know where your faces touch when you hug. Absolutely. And she was over two inches taller and, and I, it took me a gasp. I stepped back and go, Oh my gosh, she didn't get taller. I'm shorter. And the fact that I entered the hospital on a backboard means they never measured my height. So I went in and I, and I obviously the, the hospital knew me at this point, we had met and I walk in and go, I want you to measure my height. And in, in true military fashion, their first question is, well, how tall are you? No, I want you to measure my height. And they put me up there and they said, you're five, eight. I said, write at my record and open up my record because I've been five, 10 and a half for my entire life. Wow. Chris, I, I wish we didn't have to break. Unfortunately, we were right up against it, but this is just unbelievable story. Folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to get a hold of Ed or myself, send us an email to ask TSOE at Verisage.com. We will post full show notes and where you can access Chris's website, his new book, Survivor's Obligation, which is just absolutely a fantastic spellbinding read uh, at thesoulofenterprise.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. 
Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. The book is Survivor's Obligation, and we are here talking to one of the co-authors, Chris Elroy Strickland. And Chris, I wanted to ask you a, about a, a word choice, a very specific word choice that you uh, had in the book on, on page 14, actually. And uh, because it's something that I've, I've done a lot of thinking about myself, and I want to perhaps do some therapy with you. <laughs> my, my therapy, not yours. <laughs> and, and this, and this, this is the quote, a, a, a calmness I had never experienced before settled throughout my entire body. Now, earlier with Ron, you were talking about how pumped up you were on adrenaline, which you know makes a, a ton of sense. Yet at the same time, there was this calmness that you had never experienced before settled through your entire body. I know we, we, we talk uh, on this show, it's the soul of enterprise. We talk a little bit about spirituality, not necessarily religion, but is this, is this the peace which passes all understanding, Chris? It does. And, and it is one of those moments that literally when you quoted that out of the book, I got chills all the way across my body because I can remember it right now. Like I was in that moment and there came the moment where through every ounce of my body, I knew that I was going to crash. There was not a doubt. It was not a, I might, it was, I'm going to crash. And at that moment, you know, your reaction defines who you are. And at that moment, instead of panicking, my body went completely calm and it said, you have trained for this. You have been through this a thousand times in your mind. Pilots chair fly. We literally sit in a chair in our office, close our eyes, and we think through everything that can happen, both good and bad, both right and wrong, and how we will react if it happens. And that was the moment where my body told me, you've trained for this. Now it's time to see if you can do it. And did you spend time then? Because then after that, obviously, this, this, the incident occurs. You have all of the, the, the medical procedures that happen on you. Find out you're two and a half inches shorter. The not talking about it with your wife for, for so long. Have, have you ever reconciled the fact that at the same moment when you had this absolute calmness was also the moment that everything flew out? All of the pieces literally flew, up, flew apart at the same time. Yeah, so if I could... For everybody listening, the entire flight from liftoff to explosion was 25.25 seconds long. 
Yep. Think about what you do in 25 seconds. And for me, if I sat here and told you everything I thought about, everything I went through, I, I saw plenty of psychiatrists, psychologists, investigators after the fact. It was three hours long in my mind. The temporal illusion, the temporal distortion slowed time <clears> down till it almost stopped. I literally reround where I was, compared it against the times I had flown it before. It was like it was like Monday talking about a football game. I was watching replays of other times I had flown it to try to figure out what was wrong with this one so that I could correct what was wrong so that I could make it out. It was, unless you've been through something like that, I can't even explain how fast the human brain can actually work when it needs to. So from that point to the rest of it, that was the calmness that allowed me to make sound decisions. All while going to the aircraft and flashing back to my family, thinking about what was going on, you know, they always say, oh, they didn't see it coming. Or, and I hate to say this because that makes some people feel okay, but I saw everything. I was oversensitive to everything going on, hypersensitive to everything going on. And I was thinking about everything in my life and nothing in my life and only the aircraft at hand at that very moment. It, it's, it's almost incredible to try to explain to you. No, no, it is. And, and I'm, I'm going to keep pushing on this because, as I said, this is, this is something that I personally struggle with. Because, and, and I think it's, it's a moment for us to learn from a, from a leadership standpoint as well. You know, we talk about you know, things happening in business and, and things going, going around us. And I, I came across this quote earlier this week, which it's a completely different source. But I want to share it with you and test something on you. The, the quote was this, we can't change the past. We don't know the future. And we rarely are ever fully present in our in the actual presence. Do you think this sense that you had this again this the the, the, the temporal temporal distortion that happened that made twenty five seconds seem like three hours was just an an extreme uh, case of you really being fully present in that moment as a, as a as a spiritual being. I, I do. I do think it's full presence. And one of the things I'll tell you, if I could flash forward a little bit to a mm -hmm. different area and let's talk about at the moment I came out of the aircraft and I will tell you, I never lost con consciousness from the moment I came out of the aircraft till I was standing on the ground, but my body, the body's an amazing thing. My body yet 16 years later has not let me remember what the ejection from leaving the aircraft until standing on the ground. So your memory, in my opinion, is not videos. If you think about it, it's still images of things that happen and the emotions around them. So picture me, I, I know I'm going up the rails on the ejection sequence. Next frame, I'm standing on the ground. And in that moment, I felt everything good in my life. Everything. My, my life did not flash before my eyes, but in one instance, I felt every positive, every good thing, every ounce of love in my world. And it's something that I, I can't explain to you. And it was only there for a second because right after I started feeling it and I looked up at the sky and it was a beautiful day and I was taking it all in and then I got snapped back to reality and went, wait a minute, I was just in my F-16. Why am I standing on the ground? Mm -hmm. And so again, my training snapped me back to the ground to get back into the sequence. But, but when you're talking about those types of spirituality, that was the biggest moment I've ever had in my life because the feelings that came into my body, there's no way I can explain them to you. 
you know, and I don't know if you're aware of this, and just because, like I said, this is something that that I I picked up on in the book, and obviously I'm obsessed with it. So if you'll pardon me, but you you right after that passage about where you say I saw no parachute, this again quoting from the book, with the same calmness I'd experienced a few seconds before in the aircraft, I began to look around. As a spiritual person, I believe light would lead me to the other side after death, but nothing. My point being is that that, that, that that whole thing that you, quote, can't remember <laughs> was completely and totally surrounded by this, parenthetically, I guess, by this calmness. And I, 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 I just find that um, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> There's no other way to describe it but beautiful. I appreciate that. And I love the fact that, that you pulled that out of the book because for me, that was the biggest moment. It, it was one of those spiritual moments and talking about presence. When I go out and talk about the book, it's not about talking about the ejection. What it is, is talking about intentionality because I'm telling you that presence I had in that moment, the way I felt in that moment, the fact that I got a tomorrow that other people didn't makes me so intentional in every move I make in every interaction, every hug with my kids. Every time I say goodbye to my wife to walk out the door and go to work, it makes me always think that's going to be my last second. And one of the things I ask people to do is after you read the book and see how it re resonates with you and what aspects of it resonate with you, I want you to lay down at night. And when you close your eyes, ask yourself one thing, if this was my last day on this earth, would I have done the same thing? If I knew, would I have treated people the same way? Would I have devoted my time to the same things? And if the answer is no, Live intentionally tomorrow to change those things. Because if you ask yourself every night, if this was my last day on earth, would I be happy with it? Unfortunately, one day you're going to be right. Yeah. yeah I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I grew up Catholic, so I'm, I'm always fascinated by some of the stories of the saints. And one of my, my favorites is along this lines. I, I believe it was St. Saint, Saint, uh, Anthony of Padua, who was uh, a, a, a priest in the order of St. Francis. They, they asked him, he was, he was out tending the garden one day and one of the, one of his charges, one of the, the postulates came over to him and, and asked, uh, Anthony, if, if, if you were told that the Messiah was returning right now, what would you do? And he said, I would tend the garden. <laughs> That's how you know you're doing the right things in life. Because if I could pull on one other side of the spirituality, like you said, the book is not about why I crashed, it's about why I survived. When mm -hmm. people go through trauma, and, and I will tell you, the way I define trauma is not ejecting from an aircraft or stage four cancer. It's everything that goes through our life, whether it's a divorce, a marriage, a child, whether it's changing jobs, losing jobs, getting, those are all traumatic aspects of our life. And you have to think of those things because if you win the lottery today, you don't go, why me? You go out and cash a check for most people. But if something negative happens, you go, why did this happen? Why did this happen now? Why did it happen to me? And that's where you can get lost in the negative side of trauma. But for me, that's not what concerned me. What concerned me is, why did I survive? What am I still here on this earth to do? But more importantly, did I do it or did I miss it? And it forced me to live every day like today was the day I was left here for. And make sure that I was ready for those opportunities. But if you think of it that way, because we're all here for a reason. And like you said, spirituality is not necessarily religion. They're two totally different things to me. And they're also two totally intertwined things. 
but we have to think about what we're doing every day. Well, amen. And this is one of the few shows where I'm sort of resentful of our breaks, but we have to take one. And want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, as you know, the show and website is the soul of enterprise where you will see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows as well as the link to Chris's book. But right now, a word from our sponsor. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Chris Strickland, co-author of Survivor's Obligation. And wow, Chris, listening to you and Ed talk about that, how, how you were full of adrenaline and yet so calm. And it, it also just reminded me that you were present enough to realize that there were thousands of people in the crowd that you had to move away from before you did anything. And yet all these other things were going on in your head as well your wife, your family, your training was kicking in. If that's not spiritual, I don't know what is. Yeah, it, it is. It was one of the most spiritual moments I've ever had in my life. And, and it's just, like I said, writing the book was traumatic for me because I had to put words to what I had felt all those years back and hadn't dealt with. Yeah, and you even had the presence of mind when you were in the ambulance to ask, First, did anyone get hurt? <laughs> and he responded, well, no, sir, just you. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's one of those moments in the books you can laugh about. But needless to say, when I was in the ambulance, they're, they're putting me in the backboard, and I have this uh, airman working on me because it's a military ambulance. And, uh, and I, I asked him that question. He goes, I got a couple of questions for you. Did anybody get hurt? And, and if you could have seen the surprise on his face, because he, he kind of looked at me to see if I was serious. And he went, 
no, sir, just you. And he kind of looked at me on the backboard in an ambulance and he goes, he didn't say it, but his face said, you do know you're in an ambulance, right? Right. <laughs> and, and your second question even shows the presence of mind because you asked if you could have completed the maneuver without hitting the ground. Because that's what's in your mind. Uh, did I make the right decision? Did I hurt anybody? And did I make the right decision? And the answer, I, I needed an outside perspective on it. And in that moment, he instinctively reacted and said, there is no way you were completing that maneuver. And that's what I needed to go. Okay. I did the best I could. I mean, that's really what we're saying. Um, but that, that was what was on my mind. And, and as you know, most fighter pilots just speak what's on their mind. Chris, can you contrast survivor's guilt with survivor's obligation for us? I mean, I think people have an idea of what survivor's guilt is, but I'm not, I'm not sure of that. I, I can. And so survivor's guilt is something that's experienced very commonly. Whenever a unit deploys to combat and 99 of us go home, but one of us doesn't, there's times where you look around and go, why did I make it home and, and he or she didn't? What, they may have been standing right beside you when it happened. And the same thing happens with our first responders. When someone has an incident happen and they don't get to go home to their loved ones. And, and like me focusing on the sunrise, when I, when I talk to people in person, there's one picture I show, and it's a sunrise picture. And most people think it's a sunset because they look very similar. And it's a sunrise on the day after my ejection over my ejection site. And I said, because I hadn't dealt with it, I knew I, I felt deep down I wasn't going to deal with it for a while. But I had the presence of mind to stumble out of my room because I really couldn't stand up straight and take that picture and put it away. And I didn't look at that picture for 13 years. I literally did not open the file. But now it's my favorite picture because it's the tomorrow I almost didn't get. It's the tomorrow I almost lost with my family, with my friends, everything. And that's what's powerful about this is they could be your last, any of us any of us, anything we do, it's not just high danger jobs. You've got to make the most of it. Now, when you wrote about that single picture of the impact site, I thought that must be so such a meaningful possession. It, it is. It is. It, it, I can't even, it's another one of those. I can't tell you what I feel when I see that picture. It, any reason why you didn't put it in the book? Uh, because at the time I wrote the book, first of all, I told you up front that writing the book was therapeutic for me and my co-author. And, and literally my wife and I had one of those moments last week where we went, Oh my gosh, I can't believe we did this. And it's still overwhelming for us because people like to ask me, how did you deal with that past tense? Well, people who have been through trauma don't deal with it past tense. They are dealing with it present tense. And the two of us, Marsha, and Joel are dealing with his. We still talk about that. Last weekend, we talked about how hard this book was on our wives because we are now talking about our trauma all the time to different people like yourselves. And it, there are times that we all just break down in tears. I mean, literally, I'm literally break down in tears. That happens to us uh, routinely now. But now I see it as a healing process, not when I'm embarrassed of. My, my wife was joking with somebody last night and something came up about some volunteer work we're doing. And she goes, she was talking to my kids and she goes, your dad can't do that. And they're like, why, why can't dad do it? And she goes, he has become too emotional over the last few years and there's no way he can go. His emotions can't handle that aspect of what we were going to volunteer. And it was with a hospice. 
And she goes, he can't do it. He's too emotional. He's the emotional fighter pilot now. You know, after I finished your book I, and I, I, I wrote you that note about just how impactful it was. I, and, and my dad read your book as well. And we talked about it uh, a couple of days ago. And I, and I said to my dad, I said, I almost feel like I'm invading Chris's privacy by asking some of these questions that I'm dying to ask him. But you know, you write in the book that people rarely ask why good things happen, but when painful events happen, acceptance is an important step. It is. It is. And, you know, for me, you guys have been with me for quite a few years now in different avenues, in person, on the radio. I think we've all gotten to know each other. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but the side of me that you saw through this book and our recent interactions are completely different than the persona you had before the book published. Is that true? Correct. That is absolutely correct. And when you say you're invading my privacy by asking the questions, I would say, don't worry about it. You've already invaded my privacy by reading the book because that was an all access pass into my house. And, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I gave you permission for that, but, but that's what I feel like the book is for me and Joel both is showing the backside of, how this affected us, how it affected our families, how it affected our children, how it affects our future and our today. Do, do you think being putting yourself out like you did with the book and being vulnerable, how has that affected people's perceptions of you? I mean, like you said, you're a fighter pilot. Everything's perfect. I mean, you guys are flawless. You do things, you know, a couple inches apart and, here there was this traumatic event. Do you think showing that vulnerability has changed people's perceptions? It, it is. It, and, and you brought a smile to my face with that. I'll tell you, I was terrified to show vulnerability because in my mind, I thought it was showing weakness. I truly did. And, but I felt the calling to do it, right? We have these callings in our lives and Joel and I felt the calling to share because we thought we could take our worst day and help other people through theirs, help, help make good out of the bad. And I'll summarize it. Like you said, you sent me a note, those moments, I'll summarize it this way. Yesterday I had a speaking engagement and I talked about the book and they, and we went down the path. I can talk about it so deep, but there's still things I can't. And I almost went over that line and almost got emotional during the presentation, which as a professional speaker is not something we like to do. And, and there's that moment of how did they react to it? And I will tell you when I walked off the stage, they didn't only clap, they got up and hugged my neck. Yeah. Literally, this was a professional organization and they walked up and one by one put their arms around me and hugged me. I can't tell you what that means. It, it means you're human. We're just humans. We are all just humans. But yeah. this book lets us be humans together instead of hiding it or putting it in the closet. I always say that I locked everything in a closet. I knew it was there, but fighter pilots are trained to compartmentalize their emotions so that we can continue, not just fighter pilots, but military and first responders in general, because our emotions can't get in the way of doing our job. The problem is we leave it in the closet for too long. And like you read in the book, at one point something opened my closet a little bit and those emotions started flowing out. And when they did, I couldn't stop them. I couldn't, they were coming out whether I wanted to or not. And the fact that it took me 15 years for that to happen, my only regret is I didn't open up with my wife or others to help them learn from it. Right. 
you know, Chris, another thought that came to me when I was reading your book is you spend a lot of time talking about living intentionally and, you know, how this, this traumatic impact affected that. The only other person that I've read that had a similar story to yours, not exactly, but, but par- very parallel, was Ronald Reagan. Uh, he, when he was assassinated, the attempted assassination on his life, he said, you know, the Lord kept me here for a reason. I better be ready for it, right? Yep. And so that's getting back just profound. To the, I'm, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, please. So, so I got sidetracked on the survivor's remorse. So we started talking about that. When you come home, a lot of people feel remorse from that. And as Joel and I started talking about it, um, we really looked at each other and said, well, we can't do that because, and I don't mean to sound cold, but I'm not remorseful that I survived. What I feel is an obligation to make it mean something to, like you've heard me say to be ready for whatever it was I was kept here for. And that is where survivor's obligation was born. That is post-traumatic growth, not PTSD. Like we've painted it to be. Right. I, I, I just love that title. I, I love that title. When you told us about it, I just knew it was going to be a great book when I think it was the second time you were on the show and you gave us the title. And I thought, wow, that's a powerful title. Because such a contrast to survivors, you know, <laughs> guilt. Right. But it's how we live our life. We choose to live our life, right? We choose how we react. We choose how we spend our time. Don't, don't live in remorse. Right. And even before you told your wife, you, you wrote in the book that you had a conversation with a couple friends from San Antonio, if I remember right. J- and, and you kind of went through the story <clears throat> with them. That must have been traumatic or cathartic. So that was unintentional and accidental. So that was the friend I told you about that wanted to put me on contract to talk to the organization. And I flew down there to talk to him and his wife. I went to both of, both of them went to college with me at the Air Force Academy. He was in my wedding. So he knew me and Terry very well. And we were sitting at Chris Madrid's in uh, San Antonio, incredible hamburger restaurant. We just went out to eat to talk about it. And while we were sitting there, that was right at the time I was starting to deal with it back at home with my doctor and and with all of the everything going on. And all of a sudden I go, you, you guys, you want to hear my version of the story? And it was just meant to be a, you know, a wave top version of it. And all of a sudden I dove in at a level I never dove in and I'm looking at them. We all have tears in our eyes. And I went, Oh my gosh, how did we end up here in a public place? We're in a restaurant. And that's where, I realized the true amount that I had been hiding and putting the feelings aside. Wow. Well, I, again, Chris, I do resent these breaks, but unfortunately we're up against another one, but I, I can't thank you enough. Ed's going to take you home, but thank you so much for coming back on the show and sharing some of your uh, insights from this wonderful book. I really appreciate it. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or myself, send us an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. 
These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today please for the love of god make it stop when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And I have never been so grateful for the fact that Ron and I trade segments off before on this show so that I can... Well, and I, I guess he can recover after talking to Chris about his this this story that he's so wonderfully shared with with us. Uh, Chris, I know that there's something that you wanted to make an announcement about with regarding the book. So, so let's quick talk about that. Yeah. So Joel and I, my co-author and I, have always said this book is not about us. Our stories only get you to pick it up, but it's really about the lessons we learned. And, and we have always said we didn't want to be professional authors or sell books. We just wanted to create a community of survivors. Well, this morning I talked to Joel, and we've decided the best way to take us out of the equation is to donate all profits from the books to charity so that everybody knows that genuinely he and I want to share our stories and hear other people's stories. This is not about selling books or making a profit. And so now we won't make a penny off the book. Everything goes straight to charity, different charities, because we're on different sides of this story here. And we have the areas we want to focus on, but thanks for letting me share that. He just announced that on social media while we were on this call. Oh, outstanding. Outstanding. We're glad to be part of breaking that. I think that's, that's terrific. So let's talk a little bit of, uh, about Joel as uh, we, we've alluded to it, but to come straight out, it's really the, the two stories, your story and Joel's story. And Joel's is, is quite, quite different, isn't it? It is quite different. So we share a background. He's an F-15 fighter pilot, just like myself. Um, and fighter pilots don't like to go to the doctor because we're afraid we might not get to fly again. And one day he went to the doctor, he had a pain. He goes, Hey doc, I got this going on. Just check it out and get me back to flying. And, and it turns out he didn't have just a pain. He had stage four cancer, a rare kind that gave him a 15% chance of living five years. Think about that. He was on top of the world. He was on top of his F-15 and he got a 15% chance of living five years. Just after that happened, his two-year-old had a tumor on his lung. So, while his wife is running between rooms in a hospital, she has both her husband and the son in the hospital. Now, mind you, that was nine years ago. 
nine years ago. So when I retired from the Air Force, I was working with Joel in some consulting work and we started talking about our trauma. And that is where the idea was born for the book. And, and for a year, we said our stories are too different. There's no way we can relate them. And then one day we said our differences are our similarities. The fact that we went through different kinds of trauma, but we ended up with the same post-traumatic growth is what the book is about. But there's also some great contrasts, too, in, in that yours is 25.5 seconds. Everything happens to in your incident. Of course, his story with him being diagnosed with cancer. And then if I if I have the, the this right, he he was a he was aware of that, but then goes to the appointment with his son, hadn't yet told his wife. Right. Because, again, the, the one time that he uses the word calm is in that section when he's making that transition. He said, I tried to keep calm in front of Marsha. Right. <laughs> and it, it, it was like the, the, this this dual thing. His was it, it seems like it was 25 days or whatever that was. So there's this absolute elongated sense of his incident as opposed to yours, which is really th- this this tightness. But what's so cool about it, as you said, is 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 in the end. You 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 had you came to the same place. That's right. We came to the same place, and and you know what? It helped me because since his trauma was so stretched out between diagnosis and all the treatment to get him past it, he had dealt with things much differently than I had. So I will tell you, there were times we met every Sunday afternoon to talk about the book wherever we were in the world, and there were times we were we were hugging each other virtually. There were times we were yelling at each other because we were going through different levels of our trauma while we were writing the book. It took two and a half years for that reason. And and intentionally, we wrote a short book because we want it to be a quick read so that nobody can say, I don't read books, that's too long. Because we think there's so many lessons you can get out of there. And that is his cancer, his long drawn out cancer, my very quick trauma. Between those two, hopefully everybody can relate to some aspect of it in their lives. Like one of my test readers said it best before we published, he came in and said, there's a moment where you and Terry are in the kitchen and you're talking about the conversation you haven't had. And he goes, that wasn't you and Terry. It was me and my wife. And I was asking myself, how many things are we not talking about that we should? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, terrific, terrific uh, insight there. And, um, uh, regarding that, I, I wanted to to um, to ask you, you know, about your your wives. It's and they both come off as clear heroes in this this story as well. There's a lot of marriages that that don't make it through this, right? That don't make it through the, the these types of st- stressful incidents. Yeah, they and I appreciate you bringing it up. And and they don't come off as heroes. They are the true heroes. They are because they're the ones that held it all together, right? When I'm in the hospital, when Joel's in the hospital, just like all military spouses everywhere, when I disappear for a year to deploy to Afghanistan, I've got four kids at home and a wife who has to act like a single mom. That is every military person around the world, not just looking at trauma. And when you go through trauma, you can choose to either let it bring you closer together or force you apart. That, that is a deliberate choice you and your spouse have to make. And whether you're talking about it or not, we knew we had been through it together and it brought us closer together. Yeah. At, at, at the same time, one of the things I just wanted to, to point out is that there, there are plenty of, of people uh, who, who have experienced trauma and, and don't make it. And 
they they have and and, and I'm going to say I, I I am one of them went through a, a traumatic divorce situation a long long time ago. It we we have a survivor's obligation once you get on the other side of those incidents as well. That's right. You look at every aspect of your life and you can apply these principles to almost every move you make. You can apply that intentionality with everything you do. Yeah, so true. Well, is anything else you want to m- mention here, Chris, before we wrap up? You know, if, if anybody takes anything away from the book, here's what I would ask you to take away. Today, the, today you're present in is the culmination of yesterday's actions, reactions, and inactions. Your decisions and indecisions. Your peaks and your valleys that chart the journey that is your life to today. Think about that. Don't be a passenger. Write your book and live intentionally to become the person you want to be tomorrow, not the person you have allowed your experiences to make you today. Yes, I think T.S. Eliot said it, in a minute there is time for a thousand decisions and revisions that a minute will reverse. That's powerful. <laughs> yeah. In your, in your case, 25.25 seconds. <laughs> So just, 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 just amazing, amazing stuff. Um, what, what, what's, what's next for you? Obviously a speaking Turk uh, speaking tour for this book, but what, what, what else are you doing? You know, I will tell you that Joel and I both have professional careers outside of the air force. Now that we're out of the air force and we have no intention of giving up. We love what we do. We truly do the people we do it with. And it's the reason in the beginning we said we were writing this book to help others and to create a community, but neither of us are leaving our primary jobs to go out on a speaking tour. We're working it in where we can, but I will tell you as a professional speaker, it's amazing how many engagements I have taken in the past month because of the organizations I was partnering with, not because of the paycheck that's coming in. It's the freedom of giving back, the power of giving back. And I challenge all of you to find the area where you can devote time and resources because it's fulfilling. It's more fulfilling than a paycheck ever will be. Yep. So very true. Well, I, I want to, Ron had a chance to thank you. I want, I want to thank you for being on the, the show uh, again. And we, we, we just love having you on as a guest, whether it's talking about after action reviews and, and before action reviews and, and making decisions or this extraordinary personal story that you have chosen to share with us that we, we are all uh, blessed to, to have, have you share with us and, and be in our lives. So, so thank you for that. Thank you, gentlemen. It was a pleasure as always. And in every interaction, I always walk away better than I was before. If nothing else, because we're spending time talking about improving some aspect of our life. Thank Great you so much, Chris. Ron, what do we got coming up next week? Next week, Ed, we have Andy Armanino, uh, who retired as of January 1st, uh, the former CEO of the firm I work for. So I'm really looking forward to that. Outstanding. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours then. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world with the imagination of our people and the power of technology. 
Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific when we'll have Andy Armanino on. In the meantime, visit us at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post show notes and links to where you can learn more about Chris and the amazing book, Survivor's Obligation, and his story, and even watch a video he's got up there. So you can also contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.